0: likes their phone but your life will be so much richer your conversations will be so much better if it's out of sight and off you know really you don't have to act like you're paying attention if you actually are
1: this is wisdom on trial impacting your life and law practice Welcome today. Today I am with uh, Kate Murphy from Houston, Texas. Kate is a uh, a journalist who uh, has been published uh, regularly for years as a columnist in the New York Times. She's been published in The Economist. Um, She's written on topics ranging from health and technology, science, design, art, business, finance, fashion, Uh, dining, travel, real estate. Uh, I was reading all of her articles online with the New York Times and she's interviewed everyone from uh, lawyers to NASA engineers to tech venture capitalists and stuntmen and everything you can imagine in between and written on just an amazing breadth of different topics. And I was drawn to Kate when I was gifted a book that she wrote called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. And I got it in the beginning of uh, the COVID season, and it just is so spoken to me. So, uh, Kate, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
1: Well, I have spent a lot of time in your book, and, and I want to cover a lot of topics because I also got caught up reading a bunch of your uh, columns from the New York times preparing for today. But, uh, I, I literally, I read your book. I highlighted it. I gave it, I gave the highlights to my wife. Hmm. I asked her, if she liked reading my highlights and she, uh, and she did. And, and I'm getting ready to gift a bunch of copies of this. And so, uh, for those people that haven't read it, where I'd like to start is, um, it looks like to me, when I kind of look at your life journey, which you can learn a lot about someone uh, online, that you you end up in journalism, and this book feels like, to me, like, like a very, very pivotal point in your professional career.
0: I don't know if necessarily I would say that. Um, I, I guess it okay. is because of what's happened since. Uh, I've... I've never had a response like this where I get, I get about three to four emails a day from people who have read the book who tell me it's changed their life and that they've gotten a job when they've been looking for several years, they're in a relationship after round robin dating for many years, or they've gotten back together with a spouse that they were estranged from, they've gotten to know their children better, just stories like that, that as a journalist who is dedicated to just is this helpful. Everything I write, I have in mind is this helpful. And to have so many people tell me it's helpful on that scale of really changing their life has been incredibly gratifying. So in that way it's pivotal. But quite honestly, you know, I've never wanted to write a book, but mm. I I never really felt there was a topic that I couldn't manage in 1200 words, I'm very, well, I'm very interested in um, being succinct and just giving people what they need and nothing extra. And I think many nonfiction books are glorified magazine articles, are newspaper articles where there's a lot of flipper, you know, filler where you're flipping uh, flippers, probably a good word because you're flipping, flipping, flipping through and to get to something that's meaningful. And this was the first topic where I thought, man, you know, I don't think I can do this in mm. a New York Times Sunday Review story. I yeah. And so, and also, I guess you could also say, which is very perceptive of you um, asking that question, I think probably I wouldn't have been able to write this book before now, because yeah. it's the cumul- cumulation of all of my experience being a listener.
1: When I read some of your columns, like you wrote one, you know, why Zoom is terrible. And, and what I find is you're so efficient with tackling a subject. And you just said, what, what I try to focus on is giving people just what they need. And as lawyers, uh, we do a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the most common mistakes I see lawyers make is not giving people just what they need, giving them about 10 times what they need, <laughs> and it makes it very hard to read. So if I can, what's, what's the key? How, how, how do you take broad topics in which you could write, you know, for days on them and then uh, drill them down? So that you're giving us succinct, just what people need in the columns.
0: You know, I would say that take your ego out of it. Because if you get where you want to show, whether or not it's the judge or the senior partner, where you want to show them how much you know and how much work you've done, that's where people start getting really wordy. Or they're trying to show off. I find when I'm reading over something, it I, I like to think of it as I'm driving down the road and it should be a short ride and it should be a smooth ride. And no corn no corners, no turning left all of a sudden, no turning right. And what I find is when I'm hitting those bumps like a pothole that's making it not a smooth ride, it's because I've left something in that I think is clever. It doesn't help the reader, but I think it's a clever, clever turn of phrase. It's almost like a little bit of showing off. And when I, realize, when I realize that's in there and I take it out, all of a sudden the pothole goes away. I know that's a weird analogy, but that's really the way I think of it. And if you take your ego out of it and realize, and really keep in mind the entire time, the reader, whoever it is, whether it's your partner, whether it's a judge, I don't know what kind of brief that you're writing, but whoever is the reader, keep that person in mind because that's who you're serving, not yourself, not anybody else. It's just that person. And when you do Uh that, that's your best, that's your best writing.
1: That's so good. If if there is one thing, and that's not even what I intended on talking to you about, but if there's one idea that uh, I believe legal uh, folks that spend a lot of time writing could get, if they get this point, they, this has been well worth their time, which is short, smooth, direct, take your ego out of it, and keep in mind the reader. Because the example you know I try to share is... I try to imagine a judge uh, who is sitting in a chambers, not sitting usually by a pool or a, the beach, who gets all of these legal, uh, legal pleadings all day long, and how exhausting it must be, You yes. know, especially hearing people just go on and on and on and say the same thing over and over again, that, that the thought for them, keeping them in mind of giving them something that is short and smooth indirect that has been specifically written for them, not for the ego of the lawyer. That is, uh, that is really good stuff.
0: And just not waste their time. That, you know, all of us value our time and really only give them what they need to know. That, and it's funny that you're bringing this up, because now I'm thinking about this, is in my summers when I was in high school, as well as partly when I was in college, I worked at a law firm and all I did was summarize depositions. And so I learned mm-hmm. how to go through something, and this is important, this isn't important. This is important, this isn't important. And, just, and I got yeah. rather popular with the lawyers because I just went through, I just this is all meaningless, this is all posturing, this is the key point. And so I think actually, I never thought about that, but that really, I think, did help me as a writer and as a journalist.
1: Well, let's go to the book. All right, give me what is the big idea... You're trying to share in the book?
0: Uh, I would say that listening, we've all been taught that speaking is more important, but actually, listening is the more powerful position in communication. And we've lost that. And it's not only the most powerful position in communication, it's also the one that gives you the most pleasure and the most joy. And people have lost that. They've not only do they not know that, they everyone thinks speaking's the more important thing, but they've also they don't even know what it means to be a good listener. And that Mm. was the thing that I thought was so striking, because when I would ask people what does it mean to be a good listener? And these are hundreds and hundreds of people and all around the world, five continents. And I would ask them that question and they all would give me a blank stare. They they didn't know how to respond, but had absolutely no difficulty telling me what it meant to be a bad listener. Things like interrupting, answering in a vague or non-responsive, not emotionally attuned way, Fidgeting, looking at a phone, those types of things. They could rattle those off. And what that tells you is that we just sadly have more experience being not listened to than really gratifyingly heard where you feel like, gosh, that person really got what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. So that's really what I was trying to get across is not only are we not listening, we don't even know how anymore. And it's not that people are bad people, and this is not a a finger-wagging book at all. It's just, how did we get here, and how do we get out of it? And how do we bring back that joy and pleasure, and also, quite frankly, that power that we get from listening to one another?
1: I'm reading just a quote from your book, and you said, when you engage with someone, your behavior does two things. It helps or hinders your understanding, and it strengthens or weakens the relationship, listening is your best bet on both counts. And so I've seen it how it can, when I'm not listening, it can hinder my understanding. I I learn less. Or when I am listening, it can help my understanding. And that relationally, and I'm thinking most significantly interpersonally, how it can... uh, strengthen relationships or weaken relationships. So, so I I really am thankful for the book. I really am. You, you mentioned good listeners and bad listeners. And now I know, you know, some lawyers, how do lawyers typically do on the listening? (laughs) front?
0: Don't put me in that position. I actually interviewed quite a few lawyers and judges. So I thought judges would, and it was funny because a lot of judges told me, actually, I'm not a very good listener when I'm on the bench, I'm listening for particular things, but I'm not listening in the sense of what I'm talking about in the book. And if you're only listening for particular things, you miss a lot of other things. And a lot of them, a lot of them were appellate judges. Some of them were um, trial judges. And that's what they said. I think... You know, I think, actually, the best lawyers are the ones that are the best listeners, and that's why they're so rare, and particularly trial lawyers, because you have to listen so well. You know, let's start with jury selection. No, actually, let's back up one step, client selection.
1: Oh, gosh, yes.
0: To listen well, to know, is this person going to be somebody I can work with? Is this going to be more grief than I can manage? and it's picking and it's and it's also picking the person who you're going to be able to help. And there's some people that are much more difficult to help than others as I'm sure you know. So then after that, you've got jury selection. And you have to go through all of these people and pick out okay, who's going to be the listener? You know, who's going to be the person and who am I going to be able to connect with? And so there's a lot of listening there trying to figure out, you know, is this person going to be somebody who's going to really hear my case? And then there's listening to the judge. Is the judge cranky today? What lines can I cross? What do I need to back off on? I mean, there's so much listening that's involved, not to mention when the person's on the stand, because, you know... Part of lawyers, lawyering, I realize is not wanting to listen, you know, don't tell me that, don't tell me that, or, you know, I want to control the conversation, particularly when someone's on the stand, I want you to say this, I don't want you to say that, and so I think that lawyers are in a bit of a bind because that's how they defend and prosecute, but also when they come back to their personal life, when that's what works for them in their professional life, that's not going to work too well in your personal life. So I can see how you know lawyers might be in a little bit of trouble because they need to listen to do well, but they also need to be more um, controlling of the conversation, which is the opposite of being a good listener. So I can see how that would be a bit of a conflict. But I think on the yeah. whole... It, a non-listening lawyer's not going to do well.
1: I liked one of the things I took from your book was that in terms of being a good listener, oftentimes intelligence is a liability mm-hmm. to one's ability to listen because the the in, some people that are uh, perhaps have a little uh, faster brain while they're listening, their brain is processing more than just listening. They're thinking of uh, alternative things to how they're going to respond, why the person's wrong, you know, uh, what their next three moves are going to be. That 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 the things that oftentimes make lawyers uh, agile
0: mm-hmm.
1: make them inept at listening. So I'll ask you this question: Can somebody improve? Is this a skill that people can improve in?
0: Absolutely. That's why I wrote the book, because it, it yeah. is a skill. And like any skill, it gets better with practice. Uh, you know, it's it's if you think about just sports, the more you do it, the better you get. And the people that I interview in the book who are virtuosic in their listening, whether it's a priest or a psychotherapist, CIA agent, focus group moderator, bartenders, just you name it, that I interviewed in the book, those are the people that put in their 10,000 hours. They're the ones who have really practiced and they know that listening is absolutely critical to how they do their job. Air traffic controllers, you know, people like that. So they they have the motivation. And I hope the book gives people the motivation because that's really all you need To start practicing, because you can do it in every conversation and you can improve after every conversation because you learn something new. You can apply that to your next conversation. It's just a matter of practice.
1: Well, uh, you mentioned the focus grouper and, oh, that's such a cool story. Tell us about uh, your interactions with Naomi Henderson.
0: Oh, she's great, isn't she? I just talked to her yesterday. Um, she, oh, wow. she is uh, really the most sought-after focus group moderator worldwide, actually. She's um, in her 70s, and she has been professionally listening you know, since her 20s. So she's been at it for a while. So again, those 10,000 hours. And she's just amazing at her ability to connect with people. And really, the, the thing that I found about her that was just so remarkable as a listener is she never steals anyone's story. And a lot of people tend to do that. They like to jump in, show that they connect, or try and preempt the story, even in the questions that they ask. And I give the example of the, in the book of um, she had been hired by a supermarket chain to find out why people would shop late at night. And so she had this group of people, and she didn't ask the obvious questions like, you know, do you shop late at night because they've just recently restocked the shelves or you didn't get around to it during the day? You know, any of those would have gotten a positive answer if she had asked it. But instead, she turned her question into an invitation. And she said, tell me about the last time you went grocery shopping late at night. And this woman who had mm. not said much at that point raised her hand and said, well, I had just smoked a joint and I was looking for a menage a trois. Me, Ben, and Jerry. Now, those are the types of insights that she is able to elicit during these focus group um, moderation. And I, I went to several of them, and you, some of them were horrible. The moderators were just horrible. But Naomi was just incredible because, you know, that woman would not have said that, volunteered that. In so many other focus groups that I sat in purely because Naomi, not only did she ask the question the right way, but she was just so open and accepting. Her eyes never darted anywhere. There was no phone to be seen. She always acts like, I've got all the time in the world, and I think you're fascinating. And Uh. people start telling her things. And, you know, something like that, which, of course, you know, now this particular uh, supermarket chain it just stocks up the ice cream in the evening and makes sure that those <laughs> shelves are full. But I mean, that's actionable intelligence. It may seem yeah. you know, like it's a funny story, but it's actionable intelligence when you're in the business world.
1: And what I loved about it was it really applies for lawyers the concept to both voir dire, which is just jury selection, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also to depositions, which is really we do more depositions, most lawyers, than anything else. Which is we're asking witnesses questions, we're trying to find out their story, and what what you discerned through Naomi Henderson was a couple of things. The question she asked was, "Tell me about." the last time you went to the store. So the question was, first of all, it, it wasn't leading. It was mm-hmm. an open-ended question, tell me about. So it was an invitation for the story. Um, and really that's a great question uh, in jury selection. And candidly, it's a great question in depositions. But, but this I found interesting. You, you said this, you said, asking the question why tends to make people defensive, like they have to justify themselves. So instead of, instead of her saying, why do you shop late at night? It was, tell me about the last time you shopped late at night. And that by her, by the person sharing their story, you're actually getting the answer to the why.
0: Well, and also, you know, the difference between those two is really an acceptance. Okay, I know you went, <laughs> you know, tell me about that. And that's okay. Whereas why kind of makes you feel like, okay, you know, justify yourself. Why would you do that? There's, you know, there's a yeah. big difference. And so a little wall goes up in front of the person when you ask it that way. And, and the whole thing about listening is to make it an invitation to be hospitable, to be open, mm-hmm. And be willing to bring, you know, whether you're a lawyer or, you know, in an interpersonal circumstance, that you are open to receiving. I'm not going to cut you off. I'm not going to judge you. Just tell me your story because I'm really interested. And I love, you know, when you talk about, you know, legal terms, discovery. It's discovery.
1: I want to get to some very practical things. And where I want to start, if I can, is uh, drilling down further, bad listeners. What are the easiest things that bad listeners can address quickly and easily <laughs> and hopefully painlessly?
0: Well, I don't know if this is painless, but put away with your phone. You know, the phone should not uh, even be visible. It shouldn't be on the table. It, you know Even if it's off, the studies show very clearly and repeatedly that just even the phone on the table when people have been told this phone is off, it makes them less likely to share. It makes them keep to very superficial level in the conversation. So really, the phone is an invitation to be bored, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. and it, it just subconsciously signals to the other human being that, you know, if you're not interesting enough, I have other options. I'm going to pick this thing up. <laughs> so get rid of the phone. I'm sorry. I know everybody likes their phone, but your life will be so much richer. Your conversations will be so much better if it's out of sight and off. Um, yeah. The second That's thing, true. the second thing that you can do is um, ask questions be curious. You know, really, you know, you don't have to act like you're paying attention if you actually are. And really oh, And realize that and and from many years of being a journalist, I can tell you without reservation everybody's got a story and it's an interesting story. You may not end up liking the person after the conversation, but everyone's got a story if you and everybody's interesting if you ask the right questions. So just you know, yeah. be willing and show that you're open and ask the question, be curious, and keep in mind that they are, they will reward you.
1: Yes. You know, uh, I found on the Be Curious, one of the things you talked about was the value of silence and how powerful silence can be in the listening process.
0: Well, we're all scared of silence. You know, I don't know how that happened, but, you know, particularly in Western um, countries and Western cultures that we, what do we call silence? Dead air. I mean, how, how nice does that sound? (laughs) People are, get very uncomfortable if there's a pause in the conversation. And as a result, they leap in most of the time before the person is quite finished because they don't want that quote unquote dead air. And that also causes them to be thinking about what they want to say. So there isn't that moment of silence. So they're not listening while the other person is talking. And so if you can feel okay with silence and with that pause, because actually it works to your advantage. If you ask most people if they're okay with a pause after, some, after they finish speaking, that pause signifies, I'm thinking a minute. I'm taking in what you said. And in mm. fact, I quote a guy in the book who says that he actually married his wife because she waits a beat and thinks a moment before responding. Because that leaping in immediately, that signals to the person, now, albeit most of the time sub- subconsciously, but it does tell you, okay, this person has been thinking about what they're going to say before I finish speaking. And so they were not catching everything I was saying. And so, you know, that moment of reflection and also to, you know, take it easy on yourself and know that it's okay to say, gosh, I don't know what to say. If you don't and to, or to just say, you know, I'd like to think about that a minute or, you know, let me think about that and give yourself a moment and that honors them and that you're actually thinking about it. But it also honors that part of you that's maybe I'm not quite sure. How do I think about this?
1: It's so hard for uh, lawyers because of our ego. Uh, we often believe that our superpower or our strength is our ability to immediately respond and to always know something to say. But I, you are so right that the humility and the authenticity of pausing and saying, hmm, let me think about that. I'll come back to it is actually power, not weakness. That's good. It is. Uh, Let's talk about, and by the way, I could not be more subconsciously insecure about interrupting you and not (laughs) being a lousy listener today, but I'm going to be gentle on myself and realize it's a long life. I've got plenty of time to improve.
0: (laughs) It's all of us. I hope that comes across in the book, that this isn't a judging book. We all need to work on this. It's it's something yeah. that we're never all going to do great all the time, but you're doing fine.
1: In the category of something to work on, I really liked uh, your chapter about supporting, not shifting the conversation. Can you explain that?
0: Yes. That is actually Dr. I have to give props to um, Dr. Derber at Boston University. He recorded hundreds of dinner table conversations and came up with essentially two responses when people are having a conversation. One was the support response and much more common was the shift response. And that is when someone finished speaking and the person responds by shifting the conversation to themselves. Um, whereas a supportive response is where you support what the person was saying and actually elicit more information. So you understand more. And I use the example in the book that if somebody were to say to you, you know, my dog got out the other day and it took me three days to find him. Well, a shift response would be to say, oh, well, I have a rescue dog, and that dog, you know, gets out all the time, and it just, we have to only go out with him on a leash, and so you've shifted it. Not only have you signaled, I have a rescue dog, so, you know, let me tell you that I have a rescue dog, and this is all about me and my dog, whereas a support response would be three days. It took you three days to find him? You know, where did you finally find him? How did that happen? You know that's a support response. And if you think about all the information that you'll get after that, you'll get a good story after that, instead of shifting it back to you. It, again, it's, it's cutting yourself off. And that's what the subtitle of the book is what you're missing, and why it matters. You miss so much by not taking that extra step of, oh, tell me more about that.
1: And that that in jury selection, like so, so I'll tell you something you see younger lawyers often do, mm-hmm. or frankly, even experienced lawyers. A juror shares some experience of, you know, I'm a, I teach high school at, you know, uh, City High, mm-hmm. and the lawyer says, City High, uh, I know somebody at City High, my. Cousin to go to high. And, and and it and and what that does is it shifts the attention away from the juror, which the person's trying to engage with, towards the lawyer, um, yeah. rather than it being a, a support response, which really does give an opportunity to learn the key information and create an environment where uh, we can actually discover what we need to learn about the jurors i really think that's a that's a key point you you on the things we're missing i, I love this cuz this is real so i wanted to do this call by zoom because i'm a control freak and i've been using zoom and it makes me comfy um <laughs> and, and i loved i, I loved your response which was basically no and then you said, you sent me an article you wrote, a column, in the New York Times over why Zoom is terrible. And it's actually connected to what people miss in communication. And so, so I want to talk about the article, the, the column, but I also want to say what role, connected into the two, what, what role do the senses, other than uh, listening with your ears, the other senses play in listening?
0: Well, they're, they're, they're crucial. I mean, it's, it's not only your ears, it's all of your senses that go into listening. You're, um, a lot of what is transmitted is nonverbal when you're listening, um, and particularly the emotional content, those little crinkles around the eyes, maybe a little twitch in the corner of the mouth, um, the way the person holds themselves, whether they bring their neck in, put their neck out. There's so much going on. And um, and there's also just even things like the, something that I learned when I was researching the book, coloration. We're not aware of it, but there are color signatures to all of the emotions. That it doesn't matter your skin color, your ethnicity. There are these slight tonal changes that are occurring, and they they they. Uh, tested this by putting those color signatures, which is what they call for these uh, emotional signatures for being aggravated or being happy or being sad, and they put these color signatures on neutral faces and showed them to subjects, and they could tell immediately, oh, that person's sad or that person's happy without any expression at all. So that and and they didn't know why, and we and when you talk about what we miss. You know, if you're not looking at the person, are you looking at your phone, you know, and looking away and you miss those fleeting, different changes in tonality that we're not even aware of? There's just, and, and, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot that we haven't even discovered, you know, maybe even pheromones, things that, you know, and, you know, you can smell fear. And, and so there are all these things that you don't realize that you're picking up on. And it's always best to have the conversation in person. And so I wish we were talking to each other. But um, to your point about the Zoom, I don't know if you want me to bridge into that. But, you know, on Zoom, yes. Yes. On Zoom that's distorted information. So, again, the coloration is going to be off. I mean, no monitor has the fidelity, and you know, particularly they're different. So let's just get that out of the way. But the way the technology is, is that it actually, we all know about the stuttering of, you know, that, that gap and where there'll be pauses. But it also smooths over expressions to preserve bandwidth. So it, you're subconsciously, your brain's thinking, oh my God, what's going on? because it's not what you're used to and you're trying to read those subtle cues and you're not seeing them. And the other thing that's a problem is we're not looking at each other. The eye contact is weird because you're looking at the camera. On um, whatever device you're using, and the and so whether it's up, down, side, it can make you look shifty. It can make you look angry. It can make you look sad. It can make you look haughty. Just depending on the position of your camera. So, the the position of neuroscientists is that it's better to have no information than faulty information that you can get a lot more from you and I listening to each other on the phone, just from tonality and um, from our conversation than if we were on a Zoom call where, you know, and let's be honest, most of the time people are looking at themselves and not looking at the other person <laughs> and so they're you know part of them is taken up with the fact of oh my god do i look like that or what am i doing and so they're not hearing part of the conversation so there are a whole lot of reasons you'd have to go through the whole story to know about all the reasons why zoom is not so great but i mean you know it's great showing off the grandkids you know showing what you're making for dinner or doing something casual but if you want to have a really meaningful conversation which was what i hoped this would be and as it is turning out to be I really thought, no, we're not going to do snow.
1: I love the science. And so I'd love to shift to the science because uh, the discussion in your book about the fMRI and the neuroscience of neural patterns and experiments at Princeton and UCLA and Dartmouth, can, can, you, can you share some of that? Because I really thought that was fascinating.
0: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating too. You know, one of the psychologists I interview in the book calls that moment of connection where we feel like we're really, we're really connecting and we're really in sync. Um, she calls those uh, snatches of magic, and I love that. It's very poetic. But you know, when you were talking about whether or not you were convinced by the Zoom story, you know, you go to a neuroscientist. And they show, can show you very concretely what is happening in the brain patterns of speakers and listeners during that moment of, quote, unquote, a snatch of magic. And the brain waves of the speaker and the listener actually sync up. They mirror one another. And so we always have that, that phrase where, oh, yeah, we're totally in sync. Well, actually, you are. Your brainwaves are actually syncing up. It's that moment of communion, of connection, of understanding um, that's measurable in the brainwaves. And we all have felt that when you have sat with somebody late at night or, you know, maybe it's your business partner or romantic partner where you've had that moment where it's just almost behind your solar plexus where you really, that person gets me and I get them. And that is a wonderful, special moment, but you can see it. You can see it in the brain. And to That's me, that, it right. is. It's just a revelation. And I like that you picked up, you know, whether it's in my book or, you know, in the Zoom article, I'm not convinced of anything. I'm the opposite of dogmatic. I really, I don't feel it is my job to convince you of anything. It's, you know, do you feel it? Does that make sense to you? Make up your own mind. And you can come to the end of it and say, "Ah, eh, nah, I don't, you know, that I, don't, I don't buy that. And that's fine because I'm not entirely sure what I buy. I'm not out there to make, you know, but, you know, to act like I, the only true, when we're talking about the name of your podcast, Wisdom on Trial, you know, the only true wisdom to me is knowing that you know nothing. And yeah. so I'm not necessarily saying, you know, you have to find what works for you. I just, you know, I I thought that story was fascinating just because it does dovetail with what's in my listening literature. And it makes sense. And also just on a feeling level. Because I've done a lot of interviews on Zoom and I've done them not on Zoom. And they go better if people aren't having that subconscious little bit of uncomfortable subconsciously or consciously on Zoom. It's just gone better. So that's just my personal preference, but it doesn't mean it has to be yours.
1: Yes. The other fMRI thing, this was in a totally different uh, writing you did. Uh, It was on fear, but you Mm -hmm. were talking about the fMRI and what it shows when people uh, feel like someone's attacking their viewpoints. Can you share a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, actually what the brain looks like when someone is being challenged on some belief or opinion, it actually looks like how your brain would react if you were being chased by a bear. It's, I mean, a total fear atavistic response. And that's why people can have these shouting matches over whether it's politics or I even give the example in the book of what's a better sci-fi franchise, Star Wars or Star Trek, because that actually led to an assault and battery charge in Oklahoma where people, you know, people, it's just something about that being challenged really reverts to some primitive part of our brain where we feel like, oh my God, I'm going to be thrown out of the tribe. And so I have to do everything I can to convince you that you know, you're wrong or bring you over to my side because otherwise I'm going to be left unprotected out on the Serengeti and the lions are coming. That's that's sort of, I Uh. mean, that, that sounds like an exaggeration, but that's how your brain sees it. And that's why you're seeing a lot of what we're seeing in politics today, where people are going with that very, that fear response instead of, and what really tamps that down so you become a reasonable human being is, To engage higher order thinking, and that's what listening is, where you stop for a moment and think, well, that's interesting you think that. Tell me more about that. How did you arrive at that? And then compare that to, you know, how did I arrive to what I I think about this? How did I form my opinion? And let me compare those two. You know, um, there's a wonderful quote by Aristotle that says, um, it's something like, the mark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it. And so, you know, and, and also being able to change your mind and so, if you can keep that in mind, that's really higher order thinking, and that's what listening is, and that's what keeps you from being dogmatic, from being entrenched, and what quite frankly keeps you from um, being ignorant
1: i I, I, li- I liked uh, the the journey you t- you've taken, and I don't know where I saw it, but just over this sense of having self awareness that when somebody has an opposing viewpoint or something you think is crazy, mm-hmm. um, being aware of your own reaction and almost being curious about yourself and, and using that actually as a, a strength and, and almost weaponizing it. Not, I don't mean that in a vicious way, but almost like, like taking the wow, I feel like a lion's about to eat me right now because this person has a totally different viewpoint on something I really care about. Mm -hmm. And actually becoming self-aware of it so that there's power and self-control and being able to engage in some way. Um, That resonated with me uh, a lot
0: well it 's a superpower self awareness is your biggest superpower because it keeps you from doing stuff that 's really not to your benefit but also it's it's as somebody I quoted in the book it 's almost like having a third ear with which to listen you know okay, why am I reacting like this you know what what 's setting me off or why am I feeling insecure right now because that helps you respond to the other person and really listen to them, but also why are they triggering this? Are they intentionally triggering this? Is this from within me? and that informs how you respond so that's all a part of listening, knowing yourself and knowing what sets you off, what makes you stop listening, what makes you shut down that that is a superpower that's self awareness that few people have yeah. actually
1: uh, counseling can help on that sure um i you know I saw your one of the practical ideas when I was listing out practical things that I took away um, was just the benefit of cognitive behavioral therapy for becoming aware of yourself and why it's so hard to listen and how, how you can kind of become a student a little bit of yourself so that you can better listen and better communicate.
0: I love that. Student of yourself. Well said.
1: Uh, not my words uh, i I have paid a really nice guy locally hundred fifty dollars <laughs> an hour for a number of years uh, There was a section that i just i want to get very practical so one one thing we deal a lot with is we deal with expert witnesses uh, mm-hmm. they could be doctors or or in my world i'm primarily a medical malpractice lawyer, so I deal a lot with doctors um. Mm-hmm. And I and there's a quote you said that I just I wish I could communicate this to the experts, because Mm -hmm. sometimes what you see is the expert witnesses are so good on direct examination. They're uh, they're engaging with the jury. They're educating. They're connecting. And then the other lawyer stands up to cross examine them. And it's, you know, the experts a different person. They're defensive, and, and they're, uh. they cut the lawyer off, and they're aggressive. And I read this quote from you, and I literally, I, 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 like, I was like, God, if I could find a way to communicate this to experts, and, and here's what it says. The truth is, we only become secure in our convictions by allowing them to be challenged. Confident people don't get riled by opinions different from their own. And I just, I, 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 what I, what I, what I would love of that, that kind of concept is when I'm confident, I actually can allow the other person to be heard. I don't have to cut them off. I don't have to be defensive uh, because there's nothing more, Confident than someone who can engage with somebody who totally disagrees with them.
0: Absolutely.
1: We could use a little more of that in politics.
0: Uh, That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Because, I mean, nothing communicates insecurity more than, you know, the, the finger going out and the, you know, having to... Get, have their say that the person who can just, you know, sit back and listen is the person that you are going to be drawn to because you know that there's an inner security and confidence that allows them to do that.
1: Yes. You you have one section that talks about trial lawyers. It's one tiny little paragraph. Uh, it's good though. And it, it, it's over the concept of lawyers uh, having their clients go through mock cross-examinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember that section?
0: Absolutely. Well, it's it goes back to when we were talking about that fear response, that a way to train that out of you is, you know, first of all, to engage those higher order thinking, but also to practice. And that is what trial lawyers often do. So they kind of tone down that defensiveness and that anger response so that when they are on actual trial, they don't start doing exactly what you're describing. Your expert witnesses do, are doing, getting very defensive, you know, start saying things that they shouldn't say, looking angry, and stuff that's not going to play well with the jury. So that's really important just to desensitize the person to being challenged. It's okay. You know, expect to be challenged, be secure. This is how it feels, and it's not a bear chasing you.
1: I have to ask you, all of the resistance, I'm going to get real with you, all the problems I have with listening, and maybe okay. you can just help me. There's a side of me that worries. If I become a great listener, I'm never actually going to be heard. So if I'm spending all my time trying to listen to everyone else, what I care about, what I want to say is never going to be heard. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes worried. That if I kept down the path of listening, I'm gonna be less efficient. It feels like it takes forever to listen to people. I, I I sometimes worry if I really kept focusing on listening, it's draining. It's absolutely exhausting
0: mm-hmm. to listen
1: to other people. I'm worried that if I keep going down this, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose control. And and I think of like the example I have in my head is there comes a point where I'm like, I just can't listen to this person say the same thing <laughs> you, do you know what I'm saying so no, I, have I all do. These Fears, and yeah. i and i I suspect I'm not the only one uh, encourage me well,
0: well, you've said a lot of things there that you know, I come tackle in different chapters, but I think the one that I really want to get across is my book is not saying that you need to listen to everyone until they run out of breath, quite the opposite. <laughs> Um, and in fact, I have a whole chapter about when to stop listening, and that's perfectly acceptable because, as you just said, it's exhausting listening well as we've Talked throughout this conversation is something that you engage all the senses. You're really thinking hard, being curious. All of that takes a lot of energy. And that's why air traffic controllers, for example, can only do shifts of about an hour and a half before they must stop. It's it's mandated. It's federal law. You cannot listen for more time than that. And even, you know, these focus moderators, you know, it's only an hour. So you have to realize that you can't do it all day. And I limit myself in the interviews I do. I know after about four, I'm not good anymore you know, I'm not picking it up. It's time to go research. So it's pacing yourself. But also part of it is, is like we've talked about listening is a skill and you get better with practice. And so you're able, your stamina, you build your stamina and you get better. But the other skill that you get is you realize earlier, okay, this is going nowhere. This is going to stop now. This person does not know what they're talking about. And that's a skill in and of itself. And if you're not a really good listener who's listened to a lot of people, you know, people talk about, you know, your, your gut or your intuition, but intuition is nothing more than recognition. And so the more people you listen to, the more aspects of humanity you will recognize and the better your gut instinct. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there, there is that aspect of it. Now, when you're talking about being fearful that you won't be heard, thing is, it's quite the opposite. There's something in the mind where people think listening to other people, that's taking a lot more time than when I talk, whereas when I'm talking, the time just flies by. (laughs) Where it's really, there's not a differential. And generally, when you are really listening to people, I talk about this in the book, and the studies actually really do bear this up in just my own personal experience. When you do really listen to people, they get a lot more concise. When they perceive that you're really listening to them, first of all, they're more comfortable. And so they remember more relevant detail. They get to the point. They're not oversharing or telling you too much because they're trying to get your attention back. And so you'll find that your conversations will be much better and more on point. And you'll find out things that maybe you didn't expect to learn but that you wanted to learn. Um, Mm. But there's also the piece of when it is your time to talk. And, and, and listening is something that requires talking, that really the measure of a good listener is how you respond. It's very much a dance, it's a back and forth. Nobody wants to talk to someone who doesn't contribute. And so it's very much a back and forth, but it's playing off one another. It's not going grabbing the ball and heading to the end zone and leaving the person behind if I can use a sports metaphor. So when it is your time to talk, because you have listened so well, you will be able to craft a message because you will know more about that person. You will know their level of understanding. You will know the lines you better not cross. You will know what their interests are. You will know how to craft a message that will really hit home. That will really resonate that will really get your point across because you have listened well the best speakers the most compelling the most convincing are the ones that know their audience and the only way you know your audience is by listening to them
1: the four maxims of conversation that is so good i can't believe i've never heard that in my life
0: grice yeah he is um a linguist Um, it's, he's a, well, really a British language philosopher and theorist, I believe is how he refers to himself, but it's, it's Paul Grice. And he, um, said that human beings and many people agree with him. I mean, this is very accepted in the linguist world, human beings without realizing it have certain expectations, um, in conversation that when they are trespassed or when they're violated, um, make us less inclined to listen. You know, it's when we turn off and, and it, it stems from the fact that communication is basically a cooperative process. And so if you think the other person is not keeping up their end of the bargain, that's when you shut down. And so these four maxims that we've been referring to is the maximum of quality, which means, you know, we expect the truth, the maximum of quantity, where we expect to get information that we don't already know, but not so much that we feel overwhelmed and then next the number 3 is maxim of relation where we expect i want you to be relevant and you expect logical flow and then finally the maxim of manner where we expect the speaker to be reasonably brief orderly and unambiguous and the, you know uh, scholars have argued for inclusion of other things um, but those are really the four that we expect and even if you're arguing with somebody um we still expect those things. And and I give the example, I think in the book about, that's why it's so hard to listen to people with dementia or who are psychotic because they violate all those rules. They, mm. you know, they're not, they're not um, tethered to reality anymore. And so they'll spout things that are, you know, ambiguous or they're not relevant or they're not logical. And so it, it just takes all our power to stay in that, but we just want to get away. And that's how we feel about, you know, just if somebody, if somebody lies to us, you know, you shut down. It, it's just that that's, that's, you've, you've broken the bargain. And so people don't listen as well. So if you violate any of those things, that people are not going to listen to you.
1: One of the things you talk about in your book is checking in, you mm-hmm. know, are, are we tracking? Are you, is, is, you know, checking in with the person to be sure they're hearing you, you know, do we need to take a break are, do you have any questions for me? Just pausing to check in to be sure that you're being heard or that the environment is set well for, uh, a good listening experience.
0: Well, I'm, I'm I talk about it in the book is listening is not just something you should do when someone else is talking. It's something you should be doing while you're talking. And that's exactly what you're talking about is checking in. Not only, you know, looking at the nonverbals, is this person bored? Are they, you know, are they keeping up with me? And if, if you're having a hard time reading those cues, like you say ask that question. Are we tracking? You know, did I overstep? You know, are you still with me? Had enough? Should we revisit this later? That kind of thing.
1: So I'll do that with you. How are we doing? (laughs) It's after after four, and I know you don't do interviews. Uh, I'd like another 10 minutes or so if I can get it out of you.
0: Okay, let's say five.
1: You speak to medical schools and doctors Uh is one of the things that seems like you do, and how in healthcare doctors can be better listeners. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, that's... That's a real issue because, you know, people, I, actually before in the before times, probably the last trip I took was take, talking to um, doctors at Vanderbilt, and um, and they were really concerned about, well, you know, I'm the expert. I'm, you know, I'm the one they need to listen to, and, and they were really quite almost angry about it. You know, I, don't come to me and show me your, what you've learned on the internet. I'm the expert. That's why you're coming to me. And, you know, what I said to them is, you know, why actually are people coming to you? They're coming to be cared for. They're coming to tell you their story. And there's so much more than a diagnosis. And actually, the key to the diagnosis is the story. Because otherwise, you know, everybody's a nail and you're a hammer. And there are so many things that go into a diagnosis. There are so many things that if you're so quick to come to an answer, to come to a conclusion, to get them out the door, and I mean, and and to give them their due insurance and the way things are structured now, they're under a lot of pressure to get you out the door. But that does cause mistakes. And as Mm -hmm. you probably know better than most, There are some huge mistakes because people didn't ask that question, because people didn't let the person finish. And they can miss those little details. And it's also something to keep in mind, you know, this person traveled a long way to you. A lot of times they might have traveled a very long way to you. They dealt with the parking. They're scared. Really thinking about exactly what you were talking about in other circumstances. Where are these people right now? How am I going to communicate with them? And caring for somebody and really fundamentally showing respect. The simplest way you can show someone respect is by listening to them. And it doesn't take nearly as long as you think. Even if they seem to be going off on a tangent, that may be a very important tangent.
1: That's, that's good. So uh, I ask every person here, you're my first non-lawyer interview, which is fun. Uh, But I'd like to take a run at the same two questions I ask everyone. And the first is, if you were to give some life advice of any sort whatsoever to two groups of people, the first group is uh, assume younger lawyers. They're Mm -hmm. five years or so into their practice. They have a lifetime ahead of them. If you were just to pick one piece of life advice in any area, what would you give?
0: Well, I mean, given the topic of my book, I, I really think what I would tell them is to really cultivate their listening skills. And to, even if they think they're a good listener, a lot of people think they're a good listener, and they're really not. And to really be curious and to realize that everybody has a story. And when you go into every conversation, make sure you leave that conversation having learned something about the other person. doesn't matter if it's a client or your partner, or your hope to be partner, or a judge, or somebody in your personal life, make sure you leave the conversation being able to answer two questions. What did I learn about that person today? And how did that person feel about what we were talking about?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, that is probably good advice for the second group, too. Uh, but I'll I'll take a pitch at the second group. The second group is kind of uh, people more like me. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm 50, mm-hmm. so they're they're kind of uh, they're in a different season of life. They're they're established in their career, but they they have a lot of time left ahead. They're still young and healthy. What advice would you give that group?
0: I would say really probably the same but i think in that group i would say never assume you have a lot of life experience and you feel like you can make assumptions but if you start making assumptions that's when you start making mistakes because people will always surprise you
1: again kate murphy thank you for your time i wish you the absolute best
0: oh i wish you the same really enjoy talking to you and listening to you
1: me too